all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fossone. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. We want to thank our national sponsors, nvbdc.org. That's the National Veteran Business Development Council, the leading veteran-owned business certification organization developed by veterans for veterans. Find them at nvbdc.org or call 888 certified and also legal help for veterans a veterans disability law firm nationwide you can call them at 800-693-4800 or find them on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com we want to welcome to veterans radio today brigadier general retired ty sejuli ty welcome to veterans radio oh thank you so much i really appreciate being here well, let me give a little setup on this. We're, we're going to talk about the whole Southern myth. Of the uh, You have a new book out called Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. But let me, let me set this up because you have a long, distinguished career in the United States Army. You went in in about 1984 and served till uh, just uh, last year, 2020. A good part of that time was spent at... Um, West Point as uh, somebody teaching in and heading up the history department. So you, you come out with this sort of an both a practical experience but a academic view. Um, but how tell us a little bit about how a nice kid like you ended up in the Army. That's a great question because uh, I went to Washington University and I went my first year and ran out of money. And I didn't want to come in the Army. At the time, I mean, I thought of the Army as being like, you remember the movie Stripes? That oh, was how certainly. I thought, which is that, that the, you know, and I remember Bill Murray saying this quote, hey, we're the U.S. Army. We're 10 and 1, meaning 10 <laughs> wins and one loss to one loss in Vietnam. And when I went when the Army, the, so I really didn't want to. I took an ROTC scholarship to let me pay for college. And I thought I'd only do four years. And, you know, four years turned into 36 So I love my time in the Army, love my time at West Point, but I came in because I was broke and wanted to stay in college. Well, we hear that story often. You not only uh, were able to get your Bachelor's of Arts degree from Washington Lee University, you went on and picked up a Master's of Arts degree from Ohio State University. You also did uh, training elsewhere along the way, uh, including some time in NATO as a crisis planner. Uh, You spent time as a battalion commander in the Army. And as I said uh, at the outset, you spent a lot of time uh, affiliated with West Point. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's my dream job. Um, And, you know, the the way the Army works is that you get, that we send uh, young captains uh, about their seventh, eighth year of service to grad school, fully funded for two years. And when somebody told me that, that, that West Point will send you two years fully funded to grad school, I said, oh, my gosh, sign me up for that. So I went to Ohio State and finished all the coursework, uh, both for the master's and for the Ph.D., 
taught at West Point for three years and just loved it. I loved educating, inspiring leaders of character for the nation, which is what West Point's mission is. And uh, and then I went back to the Operational Army and competed to come back. And by the way, I earned my PhD, you know, sort of on my own time while I was there teaching the first time and then competed. And in my 20th of year, uh, received a, a job to be a permanent professor there. And so then I was there from 2004 to 2020 and absolutely loved both the cadets, the other officers and civilians I taught with and and West Point's mission. And West Point is a, is a national treasure. And I cherish the time that I was there. And you're currently serving as a Chamberlain Fellow at Hamilton College in, in New York. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, Hamilton College, what a great school. I mean, we are uh, here teaching in person, the best leadership of any school I've ever been to. Um, and the students are self-disciplined. They're great. I mean, we're here in upstate New York, um, so we got snow on the ground. Uh, but it's a, it's a tremendous liberal arts college. Uh, perhaps, you know, one of at least one of the finest I've ever been around. Um, so I'm teaching uh, Civil War courses. I'm teaching a course on the lost cause of the Confederacy uh, starting next week. So great school, uh, great place to be. Well, I've been chasing the general here for about six or seven months for this interview. And um, it just was something in the news uh, about all of the uh, turmoil going on about uh, Confederate bases, uh, uh, named after Confederate generals or naval ships or forts, whatever it might have been. And so I knew he was a national expert in thinking on this, so I've been chasing after him to do this, and we finally, we were finally able to arrange it. As I say, part of this is there's a new book out called Robert E. Lee and Me, and we'll, we'll talk about the book in a the minute, uh, though, Ty. Frame um, sort of the national debate that's going on and, and what's happened over the last six or seven months about that debate on recognizing Confederate generals, Confederate officers, you know, from from West Point uh, through the South, uh, if you will. There's a, there's a lot of folks, uh, you know, statutes around for these guys. Frame that debate a little bit. Sure. Well, so we should, you know, well, the first thing to know about any monument is it's less about the person memorialized than the person who put it up and the time frame that they put it up. So you, that's what you really should think about. And so if we think about, let's just take the Army and naming 10 bases after Confederates. Well, it, it was done in World War I and World War II. And, and the reason it was done in World War I in the South is that even though the South was, states were between 35% and 52% African-American, um, they were not, they did not have the vote. They were disenfranchised through a violent terror campaign that started really in the 1890s. And that campaign disenfranchised all black people. So when these bases were named, black people indeed protested against it, but they had no voice. Remember that in the criminal justice system in the South, that black people had only one, they only one position, and that was as defendant. So in World War I, we named a base after somebody like uh, John Brown Gordon. And Gordon was never served in the U.S. Army. Uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia is named for him today. And, and Gordon founded the Ku Klux Klan in Georgia after the Civil War. He was a brave soldier in the Civil War, uh, shot five times at the Battle of Getty, uh, Antietam and survived. But then after the war, founded the KKK, gave a speech once to black Charlestonians and said, listen, we fought this war to keep you enslaved because we paid for you. But if you were to demand equality, we will start a race war and the 40 million of us will wipe out the 4 million of you. 
And then he continued to say until the end of his life as a governor and senator from Georgia that vote for me because I will ensure white supremacy now and forever. Um, James uh, Polk, who was also named during this time, the worst general on either side, the, the biggest help he ever did for the Confederacy was dying a glorious battlefield death. He also was a, an enslaver who wrote about how powerful enslavement was, and that's the only way that we could do things. And uh, there are others that PGT Beauregard was the was was superintendent of West Point. There's Camp Beauregard in Mississippi, in Louisiana. He was someone who was four days. He was the superintendent of West Point before he was fired for sedition for getting other cadets to join the Confederacy. And then he went back, fired the first shots of the war at Fort Sumter. He was also an enslaver who raped black women, who raped enslaved women. And so we know this. Uh, uh, Pickett, famous for Pickett's charge, is someone who um, was a war criminal who executed uh, U.S. Army soldiers and then skedaddled to Canada after the war because he was afraid he was going to be tried for war crimes. So the people we name these after are a mishmash, a motley crew. And won't it be wonderful to be able to name these things after real honest U.S. Army heroes who fought for their country, not against their country, not to destroy their country, to create a slave republic. Yeah, and it's a whole other conversation of what should we name them. I, I want to leave that off to the side because it's uh, a little bit speculative and the process is still going to be ongoing. We've heard all kinds of suggested names. But going back to, to these bases and monuments that, are, are, that exist that uh, seem to glorify the Confederacy, and part of this is, and I think there's probably a northern and southern view of this, probably a west and an east, east uh, coast view of this, we just don't know much about our history, do we? And as a result, you know, we hear these names and think, well, it sounds innocuous, innocuous, but we just don't know the history, do we? Well, in fact, it's, it's even worse than not knowing the history is that we were, at least I was fed, we were fed a story uh, by that was created by those who lost the war. It's called the lost cause of the Confederacy myth. And it was found, it started really by Robert E. Lee at, the, at, the, at, at Appomattox. And it, and it, and it, and it, infected our entire nation, not really starting in um, starting right after the war, but it really infects the entire nation after we go to war with Spain and then in 1917 against Germany. And the, and the, these elements are that that really infected our nation says that the Civil War wasn't fought over slavery. It was fought over states' rights. Well, it was fought over the states' rights to have slaves, but slavery is clearly the reason, and that's what all the states said, but that was hidden after the war. There's another part of this myth that says enslaved people were happy. Uh, that's what Jefferson Davis said after the war. But of course, that's just miserably awful. Uh, slavery involved the rape, um, the lash, uh, selling families apart for profit. It was saying that Reconstruction, bringing this, the country together after the war, was a failure because black people weren't ready for the vote or to serve in, uh, or for, to serve in high office. Not true at all that 2,000 black men served in high office. It said that Ulysses S. Grant was a butcher and a drunk. Not true. Grant was the greatest, one of the greatest soldiers ever to wear army blue. And it said finally that Robert E. Lee was not only the greatest soldier who ever lived, the finest man who ever lived. And that's what I grew up with. And these, this, this, really this lie that was created by Southerners, particularly Southern women, it, it took over our understanding of the war and led to these monuments uh, coming up, which is part of the system of white political power in the South. Monuments, racial terror, um, uh, de disenfranchisement of black America, all these things come simultaneously to enforce white political power. 
And and uh, like a lot of history, this ripples through the the decades and the years. Let, let's let's go back to Robert E. Lee for a minute because I think it's a good example of there was sort of a a, a myth portrayed to um, hold this man up. He was tor- you know sort of a tortured soul, wanted to be with the Union troops, but had to go back to Virginia. Uh, tell us <laughs> tell us a little bit about what history shows as the truth about this as compared to maybe the uh, sanitized Hollywood version that uh, people have been uh, fed over the years. Yeah, I'd love to talk about this. I I talk about this quite a bit in my book. So uh, the bumper sticker to remember is Lee chose treason to preserve slavery. Let me say that again. He chose treason to preserve slavery. So treason, first, one, is that the Constitution lists only one crime, and that is treason is levying war against the United States. And while Lee was indicted after the war, never tried because of some just incompetence on the U.S. side. But yes, did he levy war against the U.S.? He did. He he probably killed more U.S. Army soldiers than any other enemy general in our history. Second, he chose this. There were eight U.S. Army colonels from Virginia in 1861. By the time, in May 23rd, when Virginia finally seceded, seven of those colonels stayed in the United States Army. Seven. So there were eight, seven states. Lee is the only one. That, that chose treason and chose to fight for, the Uni- for, for a, a different country to destroy the United States. Why? Lee was believed firmly in, in human enslavement as the best social system for the South. And he spent two and a half years, 1850, uh, late 1857 to early 1860, running three plantations uh, on leave, uh, administrative leave with full pay from his, uh, he should have been on the Texas frontier with his regiment. Instead, he was running these three uh, slave labor camps, these plantations. He was the largest enslaver in the U.S. Army. Uh, unlike his father-in-law, who he took over Arlington from, he broke apart families for profit, sold all but one of those families, all, sold them or, or hired them out across the state of Virginia and elsewhere. Um, he also ordered enslaved uh, men and women whipped and then ordered brine water, salt water poured on their on their on their wounds. And he was really thought, remember what the Confederates purpose is, is to create a slave republic. And Lee fought for them because he believed in slavery and fought for that slave republic. So the myth of the kindly General Lee, the myth of this of this person who didn't want to fight. No, in fact, many of his family members did not choose to fight for the Confederacy. He was from a union family and the rest of his family went only after he did. Is It's. Again, one of those things where, you know, we don't get taught a whole lot of history. Uh, we don't read enough history. The little bit we get, that is not the image that's ever been portrayed of Robert E. Lee. No, it's not. And that's one of the things that I, I mean, I probably, there have been, some of these things have, have come out before, um, but the, but someone to so clearly state that he fought for slavery, which, you know, if you fight, he's a smart dude. And the, I, the everybody knew why the South was 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 seceding. They were fighting because Lincoln was elected and they thought that slavery was on the path to diminution. And remember that the Confederates and, and had their idea on expanding slavery into Cuba, Puerto Rico, Latin America, Mexico. They had this expansionist view of creating slavery everywhere they went. And Lee believed in that fully and completely. And the idea that he didn't believe in slavery is just not supported by the evidence. He fought to create a slave republic. That's the only difference between the South and the North is is that the South wanted a slave system, a slave social system, and the North did not. And Lee was the largest enslaver in the U.S. Army, believed in it fully. 
And when we hear discussions, as we did over the last year, about removing these monuments or taking down the Confederate flag from public spaces, we we often hear it defended in the concept of this Southern heritage. It's just a recognition of my past, you know, something I should be, you should be proud of your past, I'm proud of my past. What's the myth behind this uh, Southern heritage? Well, there's a couple things. The first, that flag that we think of, the stars and bars, you know, the Confederate flag that that a that someone desecrated the U.S. Capitol with, uh, just recently. That 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 flag is not the flag of the Confederacy. It's not like our stars and stripes. It is the flag of the Army of Northern Virginia of Robert E. Lee. the The actual flag of the Confederacy was called the Stainless Banner. It has that 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 what we think of as a Confederate flag in the in the corner. The rest of it is white. And it was white to show white supremacy. That's what it was meant to show, that we're fighting for the white people of the South. So the idea of when they chose that flag was in the 1890s, and it's United Daughters of the Confederacy, a neo-Confederate group, the Sons of Confederate Veterans, that chose that flag. They chose it as the flag of white supremacy. And there's a historian um, who wrote about the flag that said more people used the flag after World War II, up until the early 70s, than ever fought under it. In during the during the Civil War. So that flag is the flag of white supremacy. It's a flag. It's not a flag of heritage. If it is a flag of heritage, what you're saying is it's a flag of the heritage of of a people who rebelled against the government to create a slave republic. And some people may want that heritage. That's not the heritage I want. I, I want the stars and stripes. That's my heritage. That's the heritage I fought for. We should also remember that not everyone in the South believed in this during that period because four million people in the South were enslaved people. And I got to tell you, they were fighting hard to to break apart the Confederacy to ensure that they their freedom. And in fact, almost 200,000 of them fought uh, in U.S. Army blue for their own freedom. So remember that in the South, it was 40 percent. Uh, black Americans, enslaved Americans who were fighting for their own freedom. And that's whose heritage, who gets to talk about their heritage? And that's the Southern heritage, too. As somebody who's from the South, uh, as you are, um, and we're talking to retired General Ty Sudajul, um, General, this your development along the way to where your your views are now um, has probably been an interesting journey, both at Washington Lee University and your time at West Point. Talk a little bit about your personal journey that, that got you to writing Robert E. Lee and Me, a Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. Right. Growing up on a scale, I mean, I just got to, on a scale of one to 10, Lee was an 11. Even though I went to church every Sunday, I would have put, I would have put um, uh, Jesus at about five. So I revered Lee. <laughs> And then when I went to WNL, Washington Lee, I took my oath of office next to a portrait of Lee surrounded by Confederate flags. And I, I really thought that I that that and I, the oath I took was actually an anti-Confederate oath written in 1862. Um, and then I got to West Point and I was living on Lee Road by Lee Gate in Lee housing area. Uh, and I, I I went by to get some swag for my family, some West Point swag. And I went by uh, Eisenhower Barracks, Pershing Barracks, Grant Barracks, these great names in American military history. And there, then I stopped at the Lee Barracks sign. And I just stopped at that in like 30 seconds. I, you know, finally, it was like an aha moment. And I went running all over campus, all over Post, looking for all the things named for Lee. And I found all of them, all of them. And I couldn't figure out why. And nobody could tell me why all these things were named after Lee. So I went into the archives. And it was the facts that changed me. The history changed me. Uh, the, that's what changed me. And so I, I found out that West Point banished Confederates 
up until 1898. In fact, our our, mon- our duty on our country, our great motto is anti-Confederate. Um, but they, and so we only started bringing Lee back to West Point in the 1930s, the first time that a black cadet graduated from West Point since the 1880s. So it's a reaction to integration. And this happens in the 1950s, in the late 1960s. So scratch a monument to Lee at West Point, and it's a reaction, it's a protest against racial integration and and civil rights. So when I found that out, when I studied it, when I studied the history, I I, I just, I couldn't, I had to talk about it. I had to talk about it. And that, and, and, and so that's, that's really what the process changed me. The history changed me. And now, you know, you're talking to somebody that has the, the zeal of a convert. I know it. I'm righteous about it because I believe so 180 degrees as a child. And I'm angry about that. I'm angry that I grew up with these lies that, that furthered racism in our country. And I want to, to, to uh, make sure that our country has the, the correct heroes um, and, and has the, the, the correct history and not these lies that I grew up with. As you know, the Defense Authorization Act has appointed a commission or requiring appointment of a commission uh, to look at uh, changing the names of um, bases, um, you know, tied to Confederate generals. Um, Is West Point in the process of also reevaluating its um, almost adoration of Robert E. Lee? Yes, I know West Point. Listen, I love West Point. They have great people there. And as soon as they receive guidance uh, from the Department of the Army, uh, they're going to do it. And the thing about change in the Army or in any part of federal government, particularly in the military, is we only get real change when our political bosses tell us to change. So the reason we integrated in uh, started integrating in 1948 with the executive order from Truman is because is because the, the the government demanded it of us. Back the army fought it for for many years. The reason we brought women to West Point is because Congress demanded it. And the reason we're going to get rid of these now is because the same way our politicians are demanding, and that's really the way it should be. So yes, West Point is ready to change. Excuse- Excuse me. West Point is going to change as soon as Congress and through this commission and Department of Defense gives uh, West Point the marching orders. I know they're ready to change. As you uh, completed the book and and are out talking to people about it, uh, what do you hope folks pull away from uh, Robert E. Lee and me um, that that explores this myth of the lost cause? Well, I think there, there are two things. The first is the only way we can prevent a racist future is to first acknowledge and understand our racist past. So we can't get to reconciliation without going through truth first. We have got to. And, and this is not a national conversation. It's a local community conversation because racism, it goes from sea to shining sea. And whether it's redlining, whether it's segregation policies that, that the federal state governments every state put in, uh, uh, whether it's local zoning laws that prevented uh, uh, integration in the, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, all these things, even in the 80s, these things are, are, are everywhere. And so everybody has to look at their own community uh, what, and, and who they memorialize. It's a com- local communities have to do that. And for me, what I did is look at every community I lived in to wonder why I believed what I believed. And I, and I, so I, I did every part of my life. And as a historian, I went back and looked at there and I was surprised all the stories I didn't hear. Like I didn't know that in Alexandria, we had a, uh, a, a black lawyer who started a protest movement and sit in in the 1930s. 
he was he was lost to me because those stories weren't told. So I'm not changing history. I'm I want more history. I want to have a more accurate history and one that represents the values of the United States of America now, which is courage and diversity uh, and 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 equal opportunity for all Americans. And so I'm hoping that Robert E. Lee will show one person's journey towards something that I think is more American uh, than what we had in the past. Well, we're back to this issue of we don't know our history. We don't take enough time to teach it. We don't, those who do teach it maybe uh, don't do it in the best method possible. I also think we have a problem in that, you know, we don't, the media, if you will, um, doesn't know how to package this up and do it necessarily in, in the right way. So it's important to tell these stories so people hear something new and a little different, and that's why we do what we do on uh, Veterans Radio. Uh, Ty, where can folks find the book and find more out about what you're writing and what you're doing? Right. So I, uh, the book is for sale everywhere you buy books, including your local bookstores. Um, I have a website, uh, com, and uh, all the appearances that I'm making and uh, there's an excerpt from the book in there as well, uh, and as well as uh, videos of, of previous talks uh, that I've given. You know, I gave one talk on the on the history of slavery there that has like 34 million views now. Um, that's why I found out that history is dangerous, just as you said. History is dangerous. We don't do it enough. And uh, I'm with you, man. More history is better. Yeah, abs- absolutely. I've had great discussions with uh, historians and and. Uh, directors of museums who keep history alive, who, who really have talked about part of the problem is we only tell a sanitized version of history. We don't tell history with its warts and all, and we don't do that because we don't have time to do that. And we should really, you know, look at the past, but tell the whole story, just not the glossy version. And I think that's a little bit what you're telling us as well. Yes. Remember that that this history will, this history will make you uncomfortable, but uncomfortable never killed anyone. Remember that. So it's okay to be uncomfortable. The second is, and I heard this uh, from Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, who gave this speech at uh, West Point's graduation one year, and he said, we Americans aren't made of cotton candy. And by, what I mean by that is we can handle some uncomfortable truths. It's a heck of a lot easier to hear these uncomfortable things than it was to live as an enslaved person or just live as a black person in the Jim Crow South. So we can handle this as Americans, but the only way we're going to get better is by embracing this this troubled past that we have so that we don't have as much of a troubled future. General, thanks for taking some time with Veterans Radio today to talk about this issue. Thanks for the effort invested in writing Robert E. Lee and me. I think it'll, it'll definitely add to the national discourse. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to veteransradio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. 
Veterans Radio needs you. If you like our shows that are informative, surprising stories, and relevant information on what's happening at the VA and the military, we'd like your support. Individual support of $5 to $50 a month or corporate sponsorship of $1,000 to $10,000 would be welcomed. You can go to veteransradio.net, click on the Sponsorship or Support tab, Pay online and keep Veterans Radio on the air.